You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us turn this afternoon to a number of different places in the Gospels. First of all, we turn to Luke chapter 1, the verses 26 to 38. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered, May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Next we turn to chapter 3, the verses 15 to 22. The people were waiting expectantly. This is in the days of John the Baptist. And were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. And all the people were being baptized. Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And then finally, let us turn to the gospel according to John chapter 16, beginning at verse 5. And there the Lord Jesus is speaking. And he says, Now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asks me, Where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt 
in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. And that is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. I preach you this afternoon from the Word of God as the Church confesses it in Lord's Day 20 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question and answer 53. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, he is together with the Father and the Son, true and eternal God. Second, he is also given to me to make me by true faith share in Christ and all his benefits, to comfort me and to remain with me forever. Love the congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Life is filled with relationships. No person is an island unto himself, as the English poet John Donne once said. We all have parents and grandparents. Many of us also have brothers and sisters, uncles and aunts, nieces and nephews. Family is all about relationship. And so is marriage. When a man and a woman marry, they are said to enter into a formal and legal relationship. However, before that happens, there has usually been a love relationship. And should all go well, this relationship will deepen over time as husband and wife love, share, forgive, beget and begat, nurture, travel and spend time together. Marriage, too, is about relationship. And the same can also be said about the Christian faith. It, as well, is about relationship. When a person comes to faith, that faith has an object. And the object really is God. More specifically, it is common to hear Christians speak about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And indeed, one can say that is at the heart and the bottom of the Christian faith. However, while The believer's relationship is personal. It is not just with God the Son. It is also with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. Sometimes as Christians we run the risk of elevating one person of the triune God above the others. Christians really live, one can say, in a personal living covenantal relationship with the God who's triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now suffice it to say, we could go on and on about this matter of the various relationships that we have in this life. However, we need to stop for a moment and ask ourselves the question, namely, 
What is the strangest, perhaps most mysterious, and the most wonderful relationship of all? Can you guess what it might be? Well, as I was preparing for today, and as I was dealing with the work of the Spirit, it struck me that in many ways, perhaps the relationship between God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, or between the Spirit and the Savior, is the most, or one of the most, unusual relationships of all. And it is to that that we want to turn our attention this afternoon as we continue our series on the Holy Spirit. Last time we looked at the Spirit in relation to the Old Testament This time we look at the Spirit in relation to the person and work of Christ. I preach to you on the theme, therefore, the Spirit and the Savior. And we shall see that our Savior, Jesus Christ, is conceived by the Holy Spirit, baptized by the Holy Spirit, led or guided by the Holy Spirit, and remembered by the Spirit. Well, beloved, as you all know by now, and you've heard it often enough, long ago, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a Galilean town in Nazareth to a virgin whose name was Mary, a virgin who was to be married to a man by the name of Joseph. And to her, the angel said, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child, give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Thus far, the nice news. But on the heels of the nice news comes also the rather startling news, for the angel goes on and says he will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. Now that's quite the birth announcement. Mary is told by a very strange source that she'll have a son, a very special son with a very special name and a very special kind of throne. On the one hand, he will be called Jesus, which is a rather common name. But on the other hand, he will also be called the Son of the Most High, which is very uncommon. And in addition, he will inherit the throne of his great ancestor David. And this time, it will not be a temporary throne. It will be an eternal throne. An eternal throne for an eternal kingdom. Little wonder that Mary is stunned. But yet, she's not so stunned that she forgets to ask a very important question. And the question is this, how in the world is this going to happen since I am a virgin? In other words, how are these utterly impossible promises of the angel going to come to fulfillment? How will it happen? Well, thankfully, the angel Gabriel is not stuck when it comes to an answer, for he replies, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. 
And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. I suspect that that answer raised even more questions in the heart and mind of Mary. Did I hear right? Did Gabriel say that somehow the Holy Spirit is going to come to me? He's going to overshadow me? Did he say that I am going to conceive and in due time give birth to the Son of God? How that must have perplexed Mary. At least it's been perplexing theologian and God's people ever since. But still notice it didn't make her doubt. For after she heard it all, she, she replies, I, I'm the Lord's servant. And may it be to me as you have said. Mary submits without knowing all of the details. She trusts that God will take care of the details. And indeed, she trusts that God will take care of all of these miraculous details, for that is what they are. Still today, we're no closer to understanding what all of this entails and exactly how it was that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and conceived the Christ child in Mary. All of this belongs to the realm of mystery and majesty and miracle. But yet, this birth is not just mysterious and magical and majestic. It's also, beloved, very necessary. Absolutely necessary. Indeed, one can say that it is critical to the Christian faith and to our very salvation. And how so? In what way, you ask? Well, imagine for a moment that the conception of Jesus did not happen this way. Imagine, as the skeptics insist, that Jesus is really the product of a premature, illicit union between Joseph and Mary. What would be the consequences of that? Think about it. Would it not be a polluted, tainted Savior? And would it not also be a powerless Redeemer? If he was of the flesh and the blood of Joseph and Mary, he would be infected with a very special hereditary genetic disease. And I think we know something about those kind of diseases today. If your parents have something wrong with their genes, there's a good possibility that there's something wrong with your genes as well. At best, the problem can perhaps be identified and something can be done about it. At worst, it is incurable and you simply have to cope with it as best as you can. Yes, beloved, and Joseph and Mary had something wrong with their genes. They're moral genes. 
It's called original sin. They were both thoroughly infected with the sin of Adam and Eve. You know, the Belgian Confession describes it as a corruption of the entire nature of man and a hereditary evil which infects even infants in their mother's womb. And as a root, it produces in man all sorts of sin. And so, beloved, if, as some assert, Jesus had been born of Joseph and Mary, he would have come into the world with a corrupt and infected nature. He would have been sinful. He would have been imperfect. But you know, that cannot be, says God. That will never secure the redemption of my people. What I am going to do is see to it that he is conceived in a vastly different way so that the results will be a vastly different person. A redeemer and a mediator who can really and truly save my people from their sins. So what does the Lord God do? He decides to call on the Holy Spirit. He will be given the charge to conceive the Messiah. And in this way, the endless cycle of hereditary disease will be broken. In this way, a godly child can be conceived. A new and pure Adam. And appear a real son of God. And because he will be born of the Virgin Mary, he will also be truly and fully human. A real son of man. Oh, and what a miracle this is indeed. What a miracle he is. And hence, beloved, we say that the first involvement that the Spirit has with Jesus as far as his earthly life is concerned is that the Spirit conceives him. The Spirit brings about a most unique beginning for a most unique ministry. And let us, let us be thankful for this. For really, this ministry that we're speaking about is all about us in the end. Sometimes we believers can be heard to complain that that God has not done enough for us. We expect more, we want more, we demand more. But you know, if all of us would really stop for a moment and really, really reflect hard on what God has done for us, merely in the sending of His Son. If we would do that, we would be soon singing a totally different song. And it wouldn't be a song of complaint. It would be an endless song of praise. How is it possible that God has crafted for us 
such a solution, such an answer to our dire needs. But then, beloved, if the Spirit was very much involved with the conception of Jesus, the Holy Scriptures also reveal that the same Spirit was very much involved with the baptism of Jesus. You know, when John the Baptist was growing up and began his work as the forerunner to to Jesus, the people wondered about whether or not he might be the Messiah. And you know, upon hearing those rumors, John said to them, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. The songs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Notice that John says that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit. However, before he can baptize others, he needs to be baptized himself by the Holy Spirit. And you know that too is what happened. One day, Jesus comes to John by the Jordan River, and Jesus requests to be baptized. And, and first you can read about it, John is scandalized. There's no way that he's going to baptize Jesus. But Jesus is persistent. And Jesus says to John, you know, you've got to do this because it all has to do with righteousness being fulfilled. I'm not sure whether John understood, but he relented and and Jesus went into the water. And only no sooner does he go into the water and come out of the water and God the Father and God the Spirit spring into action. Matthew writes, chapter 3, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and, and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love. And with him I am well pleased. You know, in this passage, beloved, as well as in the parallel passages, which you find in all the Gospels, we, we surely cannot miss the involvement of the Holy Spirit. And indeed, in harmonizing all of these accounts, it would seem that no sooner has Jesus been baptized by John, comes out of the water, as it were, praying, and immediately the Spirit comes down upon him. And how did the Spirit come upon him? In what form? The Gospel writers all say it was like a dove. Or in the form of a dove. What that means precisely is hard to say. Most likely what John and the other people saw was some dove-like shape or form come down from heaven. Earlier, John the Baptist had been told that the Spirit would come on Jesus in this way and that he was to watch for it. Well, now he sees it. And he knows this is it. This has got to be the moment. This has to be the person. In addition to all of that, John the Baptist also hears the voice of God the Father himself, confirming this is his son, 
as well as revealing his special love for him and expressing his approval of him. So you see, there's ample proof to indicate that the Spirit has come on Jesus Christ. Now, all of that, of course, is interesting, but still we do need to ask, why did this happen? And what does it mean? And what significance does it have for us today? First, there is the fact that this baptism and coming of the Spirit upon Jesus really represents great empowerment and endowment. You remember it's something we saw last time in connection with the Old Testament. There the Spirit comes down upon men appointed and chosen by God to be artists, prophets, kings, priests. And he equips them with skills that they need for their special offices and calling. Why, it's something that still goes on today. Today it even happens in greater measure. God, through the Holy Spirit, gives all of his people talents and abilities. Talents and abilities for kingdom service. Yes, and it's the same with Jesus. You know, we assume that he begins his messianic work in his own strengths and relies solely on his own innate abilities. But that's not true. Jesus, too, receives and needs the gifts, the abilities, the talents of the Spirit to fulfill his special mission and calling. And secondly, beloved, while the baptism of Jesus by the Spirit identifies and connects him to his Old Testament predecessors, we have to say it also sets him apart. For only in his case do we hear the voice of the Father identifying and confirming that Jesus is unique. This is God's Son who is being baptized. This is the Son of his love. This is the Son who has his stamp of approval. Indeed, what we have here is confirmation. Here at us is the great Messiah. The one who has come to fulfill all righteousness. Well, in that regard, of course, even today we have our doubters and we have our skeptics. And we have those who oppose Jesus. We live in a world of all kinds of conflicting opinions and philosophies. And then it's good to hear God the Father proclaim loud and clear for all to hear that Jesus is it. There is no other son like him. There is no other one who is so loved. There is no other who is so able and willing to save. There is no other who is so visibly and publicly baptized with the Spirit. Jesus is the one. The only one. In other words, beloved, you and I, we don't need to look anywhere else. 
for anyone else. Don't bother. All we need to do is look to Jesus. Go to Jesus Christ. Surrender your life to Him. Already at the very start of His saving work, the stage is set for what Peter will later on proclaim in the book of Acts. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by whom we must be saved. But then, beloved, if we have now seen that Jesus is conceived and baptized by the Holy Spirit, we also need to see something else. We need to see after the baptism of the Lord Jesus that his work begins in earnest, the work of saving for himself and for the Father, a people. Yet it's important to realize that also this work was not done in isolation or apart from the Spirit. For immediately after the baptism, all of the Gospels remind us of something. They all mention that immediately after his baptism, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. That's what Matthew says. Mark says that once the Spirit sent him into the desert. Luke writes he was led by the Spirit into the desert. What's of particular importance here is, first of all, the fact that the Gospel writers all reveal that it was the Holy Spirit who led, in a sense, the Greek term is drove out Jesus into the desert. The impression that's created is that this is not something that Jesus does of his own accord. This is not a matter of his own choosing or initiative. Rather, the Lord Jesus is being guided and directed here by the Holy Spirit. And why are we told this at the outset of his work? It's probably to make us realize that there is a sense in which all through his ministry, it is also the Spirit who is setting the agenda. Jesus Christ, beloved, is no lone ranger savior. Rather, he goes about his messianic work in close communion with the other persons of the triune God. Regularly, he prays to the Father and consults with him. Continually as well, the Spirit is is leading and helping him in his ministry. But yet there is more. For while the Spirit leads him into the desert... The Spirit also leads him in such a way that he is tested and tried by the devil. Now, why did the Spirit do that? Why bring the devil into the picture? Why did the Spirit do this? 
Oh, beloved, perhaps the best answer is to remember that God had two earlier sons. And they both failed the test. First, it was Adam. He too was clothed with great talents and abilities, but then he failed the temptation test. Instead of resisting the devil, the first Adam succumbed to the devil and to his devices. And second, there was another son. This son was called Israel. The prophet Hosea records God as saying, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Later, Matthew applies these words to the Lord Jesus. The thing to note, however, is that this second son is that he was blessed and he was tested. He was blessed to be defended and delivered by God from the house of bondage in the land of slavery. He was blessed to be promised a future in the promised land. He was blessed to be chosen as God's people. But in due time, he was also tested by the devil. It happened only in those 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And in the end, or perhaps we should say already at the beginning, he too failed the test and was defeated by the devil. So, beloved, in light of the failure of God's two great Old Testament sons, is it any wonder that this third son is also put to the test? Is he like his brothers? Will he fail as well? Must God go on looking for yet another son? And thankfully the answer is no. Armed by the Spirit with the word of the Spirit, he resists the devil time and time again. And he shows himself to be the obedient son, the perfect son, the best equipped son. The Spirit helps him to triumph and to enter into his saving work in fine form and with great confidence. Yes, and as we read all of this and as we reflect upon all of this, we should take heart. It underlines the fact that our salvation is not just in the hands of someone who has fine, outstanding credentials and a great curriculum vitae. No, it is in the hands, our salvation is in the hands of a son and a savior who passes the temptation test and every other test that comes his way. In short, we can and should be proud of this Jesus whose performance matches his qualifications 
He should make our spirits so. And our mouths receive ample reason for thanksgiving. What a Savior. Tested, tried, but yet triumphant. So, beloved, Jesus was conceived by the Spirit, baptized by the Spirit, tested by the devil, led by the Spirit. And now we expect that as Jesus takes up his ministry in earnest, we expect, don't we, that we're going to hear quite a lot about the Holy Spirit? But you notice in the Gospels, as you read them, that's not quite the case. Of course, from time to time, the Spirit is mentioned. Jesus quotes Isaiah's words about the Spirit. He speaks about blasphemy against the Spirit. He says that David spoke as well by the Spirit. Jesus is even described in Luke 10 as being full of joy to the Spirit. And also in the Gospel, according to John, we come across Jesus making reference to the Holy Spirit And yet, when you add it all up, the references are rather few and far and in between. And naturally, that raises a few questions. Why does the Spirit, who figures so prominently in Jesus' conception and his baptism, now fade, as it were, into the background? Why does the Spirit not play a larger and more public role? Well, let's be honest, we have to acknowledge we have no ready answers to these questions except to deduce that it is the intention of the triune God that Jesus should be in the spotlight during the years of his active ministry. Now is the time for him to step forward. And now is the time for the Father and the Spirit to step into the limelight. But you know, having said that, we have to be careful at the same time not to press this matter to the extreme. For the fact of the matter is that there are at least two places in the Gospel according to John where special and exclusive attention is given once again to the Spirit. Turn to John 14, where Jesus says to his disciples in the verses 15 and 18 as well as 26, he says, I will ask the Father, Jesus says, and he'll give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. The counselor, the Holy Spirit, and the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. And remind you of everything I've said to you. Later on in John chapter 16, we've read that together. Jesus comes back to this particular subject and even elaborates on it somewhat. And now it takes some time and it takes a bit of effort to catch the full import of all that Jesus is saying here. But still, some things do stand out. In the f- first of all, for example, 
It is that the work of the Spirit is going to continue and will even expand. In the future, Jesus predicts that the Spirit will be sent by the Father to the church and that he will function there as another counselor. And you know that name, that word for counselor suggests that the Spirit will act as someone who comes into your life, who stands beside you and supports you and helps you and enables you. And the fact that he's called another counselor means that we've got two. It means that the Spirit is going to continue the work that Jesus began to do on the earth. You see him throughout his ministry, listening to people, understanding people, carrying their burdens, solving their hurts, dealing with their brokenness. And Jesus says, when I go away, the Spirit's going to continue all of that. Another thing that stands out here is that the Spirit, when He comes, will not be acting as a free and independent willing Spirit. No, when He comes, what He will do more than anything else, it says here, is promote Jesus. The Father will send Him in the name of Jesus. He himself will constantly refresh the memory of his disciples when it comes to the words and the works of Jesus. And indeed, when he comes, when the Spirit comes, he will not only help the disciples to remember what Jesus did, he'll also teach them more and more about these things. He'll cause their knowledge to deepen, their understanding to broaden. He'll enable them to see who Jesus really is. And indeed, beloved, when you listen carefully, you cannot help but conclude that after the departure of our Lord Jesus Christ from this earth, the Spirit is going to be the great and primary teacher in the church. Notice, twice Christ calls him the spirit of truth. In other words, he's going to continue the work of him who is called the way, the truth, and the life. He will speak the truth, guide into the truth, promote the truth, teach the truth. And one more thing. He will cause this truth to travel with his followers. As such, Jesus says, this truth will accompany them. For he says that it will be with you. And furthermore, he declares that it will be with them forever. Why, it even becomes part of them and is, as it were, internalized with them. Jesus says to his disciples that the Spirit lives with you and will be in you. In other words, 
We who are chosen by God and embrace the Son of God will never be without the Spirit of God. We'll never be without His support. We'll never be without His teaching ministry. We'll never again live in ignorance and superstition. The Spirit of Jesus will always be in the church of Jesus. And isn't that just another thing to marvel about and even to feel great about? You know, let's face it, as we go through this life, we often have our doubts and our questions and uncertainties. We ask ourselves, is this great Savior really for me? And who says that I will always look to Him and that I'll always believe in Him? Perhaps I'll stumble. Maybe I'll fall away. Maybe I'll lose my way. Perhaps salvation will pass me by. Well, beloved, when those kind of thoughts bubble up in your hearts, you need to focus on the Holy Spirit. You need to pray that He'll work in you. Ask Him to be your teacher in the school of faith. Implore Him to educate you in the school of Christ. Remind Him of Christ's promise that He will live with you. He'll be in you forever. He'll hear you. I guarantee it. And He'll make you strong. Strong in faith. And strong in Christ. And finally, it's back to the beginning. At the beginning of this sermon, I said to you that surely one of the strangest, most mysterious relationships is the relationship between the Savior and the Spirit. But in light of all that we have heard, we need to expand on that. And we need to say that perhaps the most strangest of all relationships is the relationship between the Spirit, the Savior, and the children of God. We who believe in Christ are taken up into this most unimaginable of relationships. We're united both to the Savior and the Spirit. We really are rich beyond measure and blessed beyond all compare. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.